Hello, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, regardless of where you are joining us from. We are thrilled to have you today. My name is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this edition of the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute honor and pleasure of welcoming Rita McGrath to the show today, which I can't believe you've never been on before, so I feel like I've been totally remiss. (laughs) Anyway. Rita is a best-selling author, sought-after speaker, and longtime professor at Columbia Business School. As one of the world's top experts on innovation and growth, which we're going to talk a lot about today, Rita's work is regularly published in Harvard Business Review. She's consistently ranked among the top 10 management thinkers in the world and was ranked number one for strategy by Thinkers 50. So to put this in context, I'm number 50. Like Just, just to put this in context. Number one, number 50. Okay, let's keep going. Rita is the author of the best-selling book, The End of Competitive Advantage, and her most recent book, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen, is an amazing book for everybody to read. So welcome to the show, Rita. It's a pleasure to be here. I can't believe we haven't done this before. I know. It's crazy. We see each other often, now virtually more than, you know, face-to-face. However, you know, I, I feel like all of a sudden I went, I haven't had Rita on the show. Why is that? So thank you so much for joining us. So we're going to start with what I always start with on uh, the What's Next podcast, and that is bullish or bearish. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Bullish is you're for it. Bearish is you're against it. Are you ready? Sure. All right. The first one, an underwater hotel, bullish or bearish? Bearish. I'm with you. It depends how far underwater, but like I get the point. Okay. Uh, the next is virtual reality travel. Bullish. Oh, I didn't expect that. All right. The third one, and probably a little closer to your heart, robot AI teachers. Oh, bullish. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. All right. So if you, so combine, since- if you combine the last two right? And you add Microsoft's like HoloLens too, you can actually project like a a hologram of yourself. (laughs) And you could be, you could be just about anywhere as a, as an authentic looking version of yourself. Well, you know, I, I feel like if you get an opportunity to go to a class you couldn't otherwise go to, or go to a place in the world you couldn't otherwise go to, uh, I feel like it opens up a lot of possibilities. But then I also feel like there's so much in the human side of actually experiencing it that you miss as well. So I feel like it's a balance of the both. I'm kind of, I'm kind of mixed on depending on situations. You're straddling. straddling. <laughs> I am absolutely straddling, but that's what we do, right? The gray zone, the gray zone. So, you know, you and I have had sort of online conversations and then in green room conversations about innovation and growth. And I'd love to start there because I think in light of the last 18 months, so many businesses have been, amazing at accelerating a lot of transformation, investing in digital. But I feel like there's been a gap on the people process side of these two things. And I'd love to hear sort of what you've been seeing and thinking over these, you know, last year, year and a half around that that topic of innovation. Yeah. So one of the things that I hear people say a lot is, wow, you know, during the pandemic, it was so important that we get everything right. And we we did the right things. We managed the right way. We made quick decisions. We were confident. We had courage, you know, and like, why can't we always operate that way? So I think there was that 
moment of, of crisis and everybody just the barriers all came down competitors who used to hate each other were actually in rooms working together people were collaborating to solve these really thorny problems but I think the urgency of those first say six months has now kind of gone into wait a minute you know are we now more uh, settling into some other state and I think we haven't built the structures yet for the people side of things and I'm fascinated by the ongoing conversation about back to the office or not back to the office or what. And right now it's all over the map. It's all over the map. And what I think is interesting is we're not taking inspiration from places that have made it work either way, right? We're sort of saying, well, this is what I believe. We're not actually looking for data, right? I mean, what you would do if you really wanted to find out is you'd do an experiment or you'd find conditions of each. So if you take something like the big consulting firms, like an Accenture or something, or maybe even a Salesforce, um, there are plenty of people in those organizations who operate remotely, not necessarily from home, but not in the office because they have to. Right. Right. Well, you know, I have worked from home for 15 years, but I'm normally traveling. So it didn't, you know, I didn't sort of feel the difference. Now I really feel the difference. We were just talking about this before the recording. Like you had to take one of the rooms and make an office. I've taken over my garage. Like, you know, it's, it's a whole new world. Um, but what do you think that, leaders get wrong in the subtlety of that? Or what do you think they miss? Let me not say wrong, but what do you think they miss? Um, because I think you are so um, spot on when you talk about anticipating things. Um, and I think that's the start of it all, right? You have to anticipate something's changing so you can then begin to understand those implications and react. Yeah, so I think the first thing leaders miss is related to the work from home thing, but it's not, that's not all about that. It's that we are moving into a really different way of organizing and you need to be developing what um, some people call a permissionless organization. And what that means is if you could let the ingenious human beings who are all over your company actually take action on things that are presenting themselves to them on the front lines, using their own discretion and judgment. And then you can kind of provide the guardrails, but but let them go, right? Um, it's, a, it's a concept that we call crescive or growth-oriented leadership, where instead of being on a pedestal and telling people what to do, as the leader, what you want is the organization to generate options for you. And then you can get to sort of choose among the best options that are presented to you because the kind of command and control leadership presumes that you have a clue about what's going on. And I think one of the big things, and I will say leaders get this wrong, is they don't. They don't have any idea uh, in many cases about the reality of their organization. And I think part of the back to office thing that I find like highly amusing is you hear all these CEOs say, I want everybody back in the office. And if you think about it, like a CEO's office is a fantastic place to be, right? I mean, there are people all around. It's really comfortable. You probably don't have too bad a commute. They probably program the elevator, right? So it goes straight to your floor, etc. It's It's a great place to be if you're a CEO. If you're a cubicle dweller with your headphones on so you can get some work done without being distracted and you have an hour and a half commute, it's not such a great fun place. So I think, I think we haven't really taken those different human experiences into account, perhaps the way we should. Well, you know, you just, you nailed something and I often joke about this, right? Is that leaders actually um, getting closer to the front lines has value. Mm -hmm. Yet, uh, as you know, our mutual friend, Tom Peters, is all about sort of management by wandering around, right? And uh, not many leaders did it pre-pandemic, right? They, it, it, they're not very comfortable sort of going, I'm going to go sit on the call center floor, which I can't wait to talk to you about customer service in a minute, but right, go to the call center floor, or I'm going to go out on a sales call with, with just a rep who's selling 
you know, not a top high, you know, impact logo, right? But just someone to go see what it's like or go to the manufacturing floor. And I always say that Undercover Boss is an amazing scientific experiment, right? Because they spend all this time putting makeup on those CEOs and no one would recognize them anyway because they never leave that office where it's comfortable and the elevator goes right to the top and everything you just said, right? And so, you know, there are all kinds of leaders that are listening to this, right? Small company, medium, first time entrepreneur. How do you get those conversations going in a virtual environment and then obviously in person? And why do you think that's so valuable? Well, I think the great leaders have always done that, right? They've always immersed themselves in the business. So if you think about Herb Kelleher of Southwest Air, you know, joining with the baggage carriers, right, to see what's really going on. Uh, Sam Walton would go right into the stores. That That's where they lived. So I think there's a lot of precedent for that. Um, how do you do it virtually? I, I think actually virtually it's even easier. You know, you could drop in on just about anybody in, in a virtual setting. So you could say, you know, I just love to, like the next time our product people are having a, a meeting, I'd love to drop in. So let me share with you something they do at Microsoft, which I think is terrific. Every senior leadership team um, sort of meeting that they have, they reserve, I think it's about 20 minutes, every meeting, to hear from some team somewhere in the world that's doing something imaginative. And everybody in the company knows 20 minutes set aside sacrosanct, it doesn't get skipped, and everybody kind of vies to be like the next team that's going to be chosen to, to do that 20 minutes. And I think that's just a wonderful way of using your agenda and the fact that you do have this incredible leverage to really hear from people you might not otherwise hear from. Some of the more successful, for example, uh, diversity initiatives that, that I've been involved with have actually involved the candidates who bring diversity to the table becoming visible to leaders because the leaders are teaching in the program or because the leaders are actually working on a project together with these folks. Um, and just that visibility makes a huge difference in, you know, share of mind. So the next time they're thinking of who's going to fill the next role, they're, they're sort of present in the mind. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of it is not just that they feel like it's harder because it's virtual. It's they don't even innately understand the value of those conversations. And, and I think that that has to do with where ideas come from. I think people, you know, many believe in that status quo of the last hundred years from the industrial revolution that it comes from above. And, you know, the workers are just doing the work. And we know that that's not true. And, and I think the concept of jobs to be done um, is a great one to land on. And I often have this debate on social media, but I would love to hear your definition of jobs to be done, sure. the value behind it, and, and where you think people get it right or where they could improve upon it. Sure. So jobs to be done basically was invented by Tony Ulwick and Clayton Christensen. And they said, don't think of people buying your product or service for its attributes. Think about them as hiring your product or service to get a job done in their lives. And jobs can be very prosaic. You know, let me fill up my gas tank five minutes faster. They can also be quite transcendental. Like I remember a famous old uh, conference where Steve Jobs was talking about effective marketing. And he talked about, you know, milk. And he said, the most effective campaign for milk didn't even feature milk. <laughs> you know, Just right milk. here. Just right here. <laughs> but but I think the point is that, that jobs can be, you know, prosaic or they could be quite transcendent. And I think most of us are remarkably unaware uh, as, as people that create products and services of what the job is that uh, clients are trying to get done in their lives. And I think that's a great place to start. Like, well, what job are they trying to get done here? So I'll give an example from our world of speaking, Tiffany, you know, where you go to an audience and, and there are some audiences where they want to go through like 
every second of what I'm going to say because it really, really matters to them that the content is right. And then you have the complete other spectrum where like get up and talk about whatever you want. What matters to us is that a Columbia professor is here. <laughs> And so the jobs are totally different. Like in the one job, they really want the professional expertise. And in the other job, they just want the warm body. Well, you know, I, I often use this one, that the, that the job that needed, needs to be done remains fairly constant. Mm -hmm. The solution is what changes, mm -hmm. right? So I use the, you know, I want to communicate with you, Rita, from the West Coast to the East Coast. So I'm going to, you know, do smoke signals, right? <laughs> Because I want to communicate with you. Well, now I still want to communicate with you, but now we do it this way. Mm -hmm. Communication with you has remained the similar job. Totally. How we did it is what changes. And so that's that innovation, mm -hmm. you know, sort of chasm, if you will, right? That you're in the, what's the job? Has the solution changed? Like Uber and a taxi or virtual reality and showing up or, you know, whatever, or remote education and in-classroom education. Like it's still education, but now we're, you know, doing it differently. Um, mm -hmm. So we actually have a question here. I'm going to I'm going to show you. It's do you have a list of popular jobs that you think in this innovation cycle right now are coming more to the forefront? Is it a chief innovation officer? Is it teams? Is it product groups? What do you think it might be? And in terms of the jobs to be done or jobs like jobs you'd well, hire somebody? So we have jobs to be done, right? But we also, within that, we know okay. there's a lot of innovation, right? And so yeah. what's the what's the roles you think are going to play mm -hmm. the, the biggest part? So one of the most interesting evolutions that I've seen is how the head of IT has really shifted in terms of the, the tasks that get assigned to them. And instead, you've got heads of like customer experience, customer success, digital uh, emerging and actually taking over territory that at one point you would have just put in IT. Um, and so we're really seeing the kind of shift, which is not always welcome, by the way, by the heads of IT with, you know, there's like one group that's kind of keeping the plumbing going. And then another group that's really all around the customer experience, which increasingly, of course, is digital. Yeah. And 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 that leads me to, you know, you posted something on Twitter. We had a little banter, you know, and it was about customer service and the role of that customer service in the experience. I'd love I'd like to kind of get your perspective because I feel like this is um, an area where more and more companies are paying attention, but I don't know if they know what actually it means from a well, customer getting, service perspective. They're getting it so wrong. They're getting it so wrong. So there's this, this metric, right, which I ran across doing the research for that piece. Um, it's called containment. And it's a metric that there, there is a whole business of people that provide customer service solutions, right? And this containment metric basically says, how efficiently do our systems prevent you from actually getting through to a human being in our organization? Because what they've worked out is, you know, a typical call center cost when you have to talk to an actual person is what, five bucks, 10 bucks, something like that. They can figure out the cost of that. What they haven't figured out is the absolute craziness that customers feel when they get trapped in these customer service systems, because here's the problem. The technology has gotten so good now that if I could solve the problem myself, I would do that. By the time I have to actually pick up the phone and talk to or, or get on a whatever device and talk to a human being, my problem is so gnarly and so complex and so frustrating that I, I, I am just already enraged. And what's fascinating is the nature of the customer service rep that you need has changed. So we used to think a really good customer service rep was like totally empathic, right? Oh, I understand. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, 
that's not what we want today. What we want is someone to fix the problem. Um, and I, I recount in a recent posting an experience I had with a Verizon guy, let's call him Ted. And Ted has like the personality of a robot, like, like no <laughs> charisma, no empathy, nothing. But he kind of looked at my problem. He said, okay, hang on right here. Goes and solves like two other problems. Says, all right, I want you to come here. Says to the, you know, I don't want her to have to go through that. I mean, just like, just fixes stuff, you know, no smiley face, none of that stuff. He's like, like just kind of working around the systems in the company. And the, 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 the reality, if you listen to my friend Zainab Tan and, and, and um, Gary Hamill and a bunch of other people, is if you think of human units as units for increasing the top line, instead of costs to be eked out of the bottom line, um, you actually are able to develop much more effective and proactive strategies for finding great ideas, strategies for leveraging, strategies for building customer loyalty. Um, and, and the way we're doing customer service right now just stinks. Well, I ask this one question when I'm with executives and we're talking about this topic. Do you view a call center as a cost center? or as a revenue generation engine? I ask that one question mm -hmm. and they'll usually say, well, of course, revenue generation. And I go, great, tell me the top three KPIs you use for your call center. Right away, I know it's a cost center, <laughs> right away, right? <laughs> totally. How many heads, how many calls in an hour? How long do they have to be on it, right? And like, how many tickets do they close and first time resolution and mm -hmm. answer within one minute and all of that, I go, yep, yeah. cost center, right? Yeah, totally. It's not like, customer satisfaction or, you know, did you upsell, cross-sell? Did, you know, totally. that kind of empathetic side of things. Yeah. And, and, and do you think that out of this last 18 months, as so much has shifted, that, that leaders will start to view things differently about their employees that they have? I think the smart ones, the the intuitive, you know, the the empathic ones, the smart ones that know that human beings are incredibly ingenious and can be forces for tremendous innovation and growth. I think they will. I think you're always going to have, you know, a bunch of dunces that basically see humans as badly performing robots and don't take advantage of the ingeniousness that they bring to bear. So I think it really is a spread. I do think the better companies are starting to inch towards this notion of permissionlessness, which is that, that you know, if we can provide resources, small amounts of resources right out at the edges of the organization, people can take action without having to ask permission. And that it increases your clock speed, right? It increases your organization's ability to respond to events, which is agility, right? It increases your ability to discover, increases your bandwidth. Um, whereas imagine, you know, if you had to kind of work your way up a hierarchy and back down again, every time you had a problem to solve, you know, it'd be 1980 before you got back to people. And, and so it's like, I, th I think we haven't figured that out yet. And I think one of the big insecurities executives have, and I think one of the also underlying themes behind this whole get your butts back in the office kind of conversation is they, they worry about control, right? Yeah. They worry about, I could lose control. And what I always tell them is if you build the right guardrails, like if you have the right principles and training, you know, and culture in place, you don't need to worry about control. You just don't need to worry about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I like when the conversation around customer service and customer experience gets outside of the normal channels, right? It's not just marketers talking about it or executives talking about it on an earnings call, right? That it's academics and thinkers like yourself that tries to help people understand those interdependencies between the decisions that they make and the frontline people that actually have to execute it, right? And there's a big gap between strategy and execution. And in between those two things are people, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're not creating those environments where 
at the edges, they can show up with innovative ideas and new ways of doing things and creating post-it notes. Um, you know, there is, there's a way to do that, but you know, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't spend a little bit of time because around seeing around corners, because you've got the paperback coming out in September. So everybody, if you don't have it, you know, pre-order that paperback um, and you have some other things coming up, but talk about sort of the foundational uh, work behind seeing around corners and, and what you think the aha moment was for you. For me, the aha moment was how long they take to materialize. When I say they, I mean strategic inflection points. And so when a strategic inflection point passes, right, and it's upon you, it feels as though it came out of nowhere, COVID being an excellent example, right? right. I mean, we were all January of 2020, we were all like hanging out and living our lives. And by March of 2020, everything had changed. And yet, and I wrote about this also recently, this had been predicted right down to where this such a thing was likely to emerge from by multiple, multiple credible sources is years long. So I think the first big aha about seeing around corners was if these things proceed, as Ernest Hemingway very famously wrote, you know, gradually and then suddenly, if you can pick them up when they're still at that gradual phase, when they're just beginning to make themselves known, uh, that's an opportunity to take your business, your person, your career to new heights. If you just ignore them and pretend they don't exist, you're going to go south. But Staying flat is not an option. And I think that's the part people have not yet kind of grappled with, which is it's this way or it's that way. It's not it's not steady state. Um, so I think the book is really about how do you see them? How do you decide what to do about them? Because it's not always obvious. I mean, AT&T invented a picture phone back to your smoke signals in 1962. They knew we wanted video conversation, but it was just not ready yet. <laughs> you know, the technology didn't exist yet. And then the third thing really is about the people. How do you bring the organization along with you? And there's a couple of things you said there, right? And I, many people, and I, me included, by the way, when, when COVID first hit, I was calling it a black swan event. And then I heard the interview, right? Where he's like, it was not a black swan event because a black swan event is, you know, unexpected, like the tsunami, right? right. That is black swan event or, you know, a nuclear plant, you know, blowing up um, <laughs> where this was more of a rogue wave. Uh, but ultimately, right, you have those signals and many are not paying attention to the signals, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not about like, I need to learn everything there is about mm -hmm. epidemiology. Like I know more than I ever want to know. Like I, okay. <laughs> Don't I need it. Yeah. But how many put in their risk equations as big enterprises that if something like this happened, it wasn't even in those risk equations for companies. And so that scenario planning of what if, you, you have to start to look at for those signals. So where do you suggest people go to find that? Is it just consuming content like this? You know, obviously reading your book so you know then what to do with it. But ultimately, where do you go to look for those signals? Well, I talk in the book about getting out to the edges, um, they, building on Andy's Andy Grove's observation that snow melts, but it melts from the edges. It doesn't sort of present itself neatly <laughs> at the table in the conference room. So you, there really is a place for getting out to the edges, getting input from people that you don't normally get input from. But here's the technique that I use. You identify a time zero event, you know, a pandemic hits, and then you work backward and you say, what would have to be true? for that time zero event to evolve one way or the other. So one I'll give you right now is, so here we are, it's August, right? Um, let's say we want to think about where we're going to be pandemic-wise by March of 2022, right? And we've got two 
scenarios. One is we're in great shape. You know, the world is back to some kind of effective functioning where human beings aren't afraid to be together. And the other scenario is, no, we're just lurching from crisis to crisis and the pandemic is with us forever. Um, well, if you think about it, there is data you could look at, right, that would predict which, which one is becoming more likely as you step back in time. And so for the happy, likely scenario, you'd want to see mass vaccinations and you'd want to see really good global distribution of vaccines and you'd want to see additional measures like, you know, population health concerns and a, a united front around what are we going to do in the following scenarios. And in the other scenario, right, you'd see kind of chaotic decision making, you'd see vaccines like not where they're most needed, you know, and, 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 and without making any value judgments one way or the other, you can say, well, there's data, right, <laughs> that we could formulate a hypothesis around. Right. And so another thing I think that's really important, and this is something I picked up from Miss um, uh, Russell, who uh, says, don't confuse your predictions with your preferences. We all know what we'd prefer. That does not mean that's what we think is going to happen. Yeah, data bias, <laughs> signal bias is real. Uh, we have a we have a question um, here from Andre and and means snow, but if snow melts from the edges, what do you recommend to detect inflection points when no one wants to see them? Oh, that's so critical. And I just wrote an article about this. So there's a couple of th techniques you can use. And this is probably going to be like in the, in the heart of my next book. So the first thing you want to do is create a story that's really scary. So if you think about the Y2K thing, nobody wanted to spend $100 billion to fix the, you know, the two digits for the year. Probably. Nobody wanted to do that. But the predictions of what would happen if we didn't do that were so catastrophic and so real to people, to people that were knowledgeable, that we spent $100 billion as a society to fix this computer bug. Uh, the second thing you can do is give them a stake in the future. So things like clawbacks, if you take unnecessarily risky financial moves, things like making sure part of your incentives have to do with what happens in the future. Um, third, you can make a third party uh, attest to the likelihood or not of this thing happening. So something like the Champlain Towers South situation in, in Florida, you know, very clearly the people that were in charge of taking steps to ensure the integrity of the building had a very difficult time mobilizing uh, others to be as concerned. And there was no kind of third party that said, wait a minute, wait a minute, no, we've got building codes here, you know, there's stuff you have to do. So there's some things you can do to really structurally put into place um, mechanisms to make people care. Well, you know, and I'm excited about the next book um, for sure. And thank you for the question, Andre, but you have something else you're excited about launching here uh, next yeah. month. Um, so maybe you can share that too. Sure. So one of my biggest life's frustrations is I, I, I do all this research and give talks and everything and people go, whoa, that's amazing. And then they go back to their offices and it's like, what is it? Is it a spreadsheet? Is it a PowerPoint? So it was pretty clear to me there was a gap between the insight and the ideas and tools people needed to do them. So what I'm launching is it's not a software product, but it's like a software guide, which allows you to do kind of discovery driven, uncertainty driven things. And it's coupled together with a learning system that lets you get to a point, say, I don't know anything about customer interviews. Let me pop on over to the learning system, do a little quickie course on what customer interviews, come back and do my interviews. And every iteration you're getting smarter as an organization. So I'm super excited about that. Oh, you know, and, and I think that that's so valuable because I feel the same way. You know, I'll say something or I'll say something on stage and people are like, what's my Monday morning? What's my Monday morning to do? Mm -hmm. You know, and it can be overwhelming. Like you've just spent, we've spent, you know, 27 minutes and you've given just a litany of ideas and concepts and, uh, and sometimes it's overwhelming. And so with that, you know, m minus the, the, the product you're, you know, the uh, uh, solution you're going to be launching next month, mm -hmm. 
what would be your Monday morning huddle? What would be your Monday morning to do for those listening today based on uh, what you but sure. based on what you've said? Yeah. Sure. So um, ask how you might spend one hour a week differently thinking about the future. So I'm not going to ask you to change your life, but you're capable of changing an hour a week uh, and make that hour about the future. Amen. <laughs> That's a good one, because I say all the time that we have to have this beginner's mind, which allows us time to give ourselves permission to think differently about those jobs to be done, right? How can I either spend more time doing what I find enjoyable, to be more creative, to stretch myself into areas that make me uncomfortable? You know, th that if you don't make those investments uh, in your own career, in your own personal self, how do you expect others to want to make that investment in you as well? You? Absolutely. It in you as well. Well, Rita, this has been such an amazing conversation. Please share uh, with our listeners how they can keep in touch with you and where they can keep up on all the work that you're doing and the launch of your, your new solution. Great. Well, two websites, RitaMcGrath.com and Valise, V-A-L-I-Z-E.com will get you a lot of the way in. Excellent. Well, my name is Tiffany Bova. Thank you guys all for joining me today with Rita McGrath. It's been absolutely my pleasure having you. It was such an amazing conversation. Thank you for all the questions uh, that we got from around the world. And we'll see you next time on What's Next. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks, everyone.